Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Decks event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. For this episode, I am delighted to be welcoming the first female DJ onto Behind the Decks. I discovered her doing a warm-up set for one of my favourite music acts, Sophie Tucker. It also happened to be in my favourite venue in London, Coco. She absolutely smashed her set and got the crowd in the perfect mood for when Sophie Tucker came on. You know the sign of a great set when you're embarrassingly shazamming every record the DJ spins. Her name is Leah, or as she is otherwise known, LPGOB. On her website, she is described as a producer, DJ, music director, synth warrior goddess, which is a bit of a mouthful. Originally from Oregon in the United States, she is now based in Los Angeles, California. When she's not collaborating or touring with the likes of Sophie Tucker, UK producer Jax Jones, Hotel Garuda or Autograph, she's co-founding publishing companies and touring promoter group Animal Talk Collective. She also heads up a non-profit organisation called House to address the lack of representation and equity in electronic music for women. She also acts as North American music director for W Hotels and runs an apparel business aptly named Gioby. Last year, she performed breakthrough sets at some of the biggest festival stages in the US, including Moogfest, Hard Summer and Coachella, with her track Amber Rose, named by DJ Mag as one of its 20 massive tracks from Coachella's 2019 edition. She's been co-signed by some of music's biggest names and brands and has provided mixes to Diplo's Revolution on Sirius XM. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with LPGOB. Leah, welcome to Behind the Decks. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time out of your day. Um, at the moment, as we're recording this, it's London is eight hours ahead, so I'm doing this in the evening. I'm presuming it's very sunny and nice in Los Angeles. How are you and how are you coping with the, the general situation right now? Because it's a, the situation is a bit messed up in England, but I'm imagining it's a bit more scary in America right now, especially with everything else that's going on. Yeah, uh, whew, it is, well, it's 97 degrees here today, which um, is it feels very intense. And it's, it's about 12.30 p.m., so it'll probably get a little bit hotter, too. Uh, yeah, and, you know, obviously with the pandemic uh, mixed with the racial inequality and injustice that people are finally facing for really what I feel like is maybe the first time. What's What's wild about what's going on in America right now is that People are comparing this to the civil rights movement, actually, in some ways, which is extremely exciting. Um, but like, you know, during that movement, the conversation was, and like, you know, during my parents' generation, the conversation was really about being, you know, I'm not a racist. Like, I I know that it's bad to judge somebody by the color of their skin. And like the conversation sort of stopped there. And what's happening now, which is really um, amazing, is that it's not enough just to not be a racist. You have to be an anti-racist. And so, you know, white people with the power that we have um, in our culture and society, we have to actively work, not just like, you know, it's not just good enough to not judge somebody by the color of their skin. We have to like use our power to like make sure we're hiring black people on our teams, make sure we are, you know, giving credit to the music that we're playing. Um, that was most likely, especially house music started by black queer people. We have to make sure that we like we're, we're using our actual resources to open the door and, um, you know, lift in help with, with whatever power we have actually make tangible changes and infrastructural changes. So it's really it's like the conversation is for the first time in the history of America, it feels like it's going in the right direction. Um, but it's also, you know, it's it's I think that it's like a lot of white people are feeling extra their, their guilt and their privilege really heavily. And some of us are, are looking that head on and sitting in the discomfort and some of us are trying to run from it. And so I am curious to see how, you know, how this gets processed out in the next five to 10 years. Mm, I completely agree with everything you've said there, Leah. Um, now for the listeners, we, 
I say met, I basically ran up to you after a Sophie Tucker gig in London and just said how amazing your DJ set was. And that was almost, that was almost two years ago now. I remember you were dropping like all these amazing house records and like I'm a massive music nerd and even I was sort of like embarrassingly getting out my phone to sort of Shazam some of these records that you were playing. I remember you played, you played a, um, you played a tune called um, Calienda 2K15 by Lauren Wolf and versus Lucas and Steve. And I still listen to that still on my, like my bangers playlist like now. Like I keep on like at, right at the top when for parties come on, I always have that tune like locked and loaded. Um, just what are your sort of memories from that gig? Because I remember you, you're, you were such a bundle of energy and like I remember you like you were doing your last song and you like came out and did a dance with the crowd. Like it was it was such a fun way to sort of start a gig. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of an, an antithesis, I guess, to us. a lot of DJs who are very serious and kind of like like to stay exactly in the zone all the time. Yeah, you know, what I learned, gosh, two years ago, so I started DJing, um, that was just like, really a year into my learning how to DJ, and I, which was, which now is about three years ago, Um, but I learned pretty quickly on my journey, I I kind of actually learned how to DJ in front of people, which meant that I failed a lot um, (laughs) in front of audiences, and what I learned from that experience, though, is there's always going to be a better DJ. There's always going to be a better piano. Like I also now play the piano when I DJ and I have some like some synth gear. Um, so it's like a part DJ set part, you know, modularly live set. Um, and what I, what I learned though, is that like, there's always gonna be a better piano player. There's always going to be a better DJ. There's always going to be a better producer, but like, that's not what I'm here. That's not what I'm put on the planet to do my role. And like what I know is my purpose and what I know that I'm actually good at is um, being a conduit of joy for other people. So like, you know, my, my role is to make sure that I am able to get to a place where I'm present before I go on stage or before I go in the DJ booth where I'm just, uh, um, where I'm present and I'm feeling grounded in myself and, you know, focused on my own gratitude because, um, like that's what I'm here to, to, to spread. And like, if I make a bad mix or if I play a wrong piano note or whatever, it's like, just move on. That's not what this is about. So I think that that, uh, you know, I, I'm also like an extreme perfectionist and extremely type A person. <laughs> and so it was um, when I when I first started, it was like, I was obsessed with this idea of being perfect and like always being presenting myself in a perfect way and every mix being perfect. And um, what what changed it for me is I finally had the opportunity to play in Oregon on a tour. And uh, my parents, I'm from a tiny town, Eugene, but they drove to Portland, Oregon to, to come see me play. And they brought some of their friends who were like, you know, second moms and dads to me that helped raise me as well. And so I was, I was so nervous because I wanted, you know, I wanted to play perfectly for them and I wanted them to think that I had a legitimate career. <laughs> and, and I stepped on stage and I started playing and I looked out in the audience and I, I could see my family seeing me as like my 10 year old girl self. And I was like a very joyous kid. I was very full of life and energy. And um, I, I could see them like how they how they looked at me. I could just like feel that part of myself sort of like coming out. And like, I also was fearless and I didn't care what other people thought. And I just sort of, I just lived my life to its fullest. And I started feeling that coming forward as I was DJing. And it just was this light bulb moment for me. Like, this is what I'm here for. I'm here to like tap into my inner inner child and feel that like courageous joy that we did before we knew we could even fail. And like, that's all I'm supposed to do. Like everything else is just secondary. So that, um, that was like a big revelation for me. And, um, I actually think that like that sort of happened on that. We did the U S part of that tour before going to Coco in London. And, um, that's sort of where it all happened for me. So that's great. Well, we've always, we've already, uh, covered a few of the questions I was going to do in the first topic. So let's, let's crack on and get started. Awesome. Let's start the pod, Leah, by talking about your journey as LPGOB. So firstly, just tell me a bit about how your love affair with music begin um, began. Sorry, just tell me a bit about some of your favorite records growing up, maybe your music idols, inspirations, and how you how you first got into producing and DJing. You know, when did you pick up your first instrument and and who were sort of like the inspirations for you growing up? Yeah, great questions. Um, so I started my musical journey in second grade. I um, went to my parents and I begged them to give me piano lessons um, or like to find a teacher for me to take piano lessons. And um, their reaction was like, aren't you kind of young for that? Like, 
you can, you know, you're just such a tiny child. <laughs> um, but I stuck with it and I was very persistent with them. And they found this woman named Carolyn Horn, um, uh, who's a piano teacher in Eugene, Oregon. And, um, I mean, that's hands down without a doubt, the most influential person in my life. I mean, she's the reason that we're talking here today. So I started studying with her in second grade and um, I studied with her all the way through graduating high school um, and, you know, leaving, leaving for college. And the thing about her is that, you know, the days that like in middle school when I started, you know, wanting to like stay after school to like flirt with boys or whatever, and sort of like practice the piano, she kept me engaged because, um, she really focused on teaching creativity more than, you know, learning your, your scales and like doing the drills. And so some days I would come in and we would just open the lid of the piano. She had this amazing Busendorf for grand piano that she built her room around actually. It's like, there was like one, it was one of five in North America at the time. Um, and she would open the lid of it and we would play the strings, like the inside of the piano. Or some days I would come and we would just play bongos or other days we would literally just put on music and dance or other days I would just, you know, talk and she would listen. Um, and she just, she just cultivated creativity and joy for music in a way that like, I just, I'm the luckiest person alive to have experienced that. Um, and she also is, when I was in high school, she's, she went back to school. She, you know, she had, uh, she's a classical pianist and at the age of like she was 65 at the time she went back to school to learn electronic music she was she was the only person over 25 in the classes and she was also the only woman and you know at, she didn't even own a computer so she had to uh i mean her journey is incredible so she you know fought her way tooth and nail to learning a completely different set of instruments you know synthesizers and computers and um, and unfortunately at the time I was like super disengaged from that part. I was like, I just want to learn the piano, you know, and now I'm like kicking myself. <laughs> if only I had like utilized it at the time. But I think that subconsciously what that did was, um, you know, just, just seeing a woman go into a space where, you know, that nobody looks like her and, um, just seeing her conquer it. And like, you know, by the end of the courses, the, a bunch of the dudes were like asking her for help before the finals and stuff. And, and just, and just seeing, you know, whether it was conscious or subconscious, seeing her tackle that space. I, I'm, I know that had a very direct influence on me and, um, things I'm now, the work I'm now doing with, with my nonprofit Femme House. And, um, but yeah, so I, I learned how to play the piano by her and I still talk to her every single day, <laughs> literally to this day. And, um, I then went to school for, I went to graduate high school and I went to college, UC Berkeley, um, Berkeley, California, and studied jazz piano performance is the degree that I graduated with. Um, and, you know, I remember my, my piano teacher that I grew up with, Carolyn, I remember her telling me like, oh, it's like, it's, it's a different experience to study music in, in an institution, you know, like in a school. I, I hope that you know, you're definitely a very free spirit and I hope that it goes well for you. <laughs> and, um, I luckily ha I had a few different teachers. Some were very by the books and, you know, we want to make you sound exactly how we sound. And that was challenging for me, but I had, I was, I, I had the um, lucky fortune of studying with Myra Melford, who is like an experimental jazz pianist and she's remarkable. So, you know, she talks, she talked a lot about um, you as a human are just a conduit for the music that's coming into you. Like it's not, it's, you know, don't worry about your ego because like, it's not coming from, from you, it's coming into you and like how to channel that and how to like tap into that. And um, so that was sort of my first experience with thinking about music making existentially. And um, I feel really grateful for that. So, so here I was a jazz piano player <laughs> and I graduated from college and I thought, well, shoot, now what am I going to do? Because my parents were so supportive. You know, they were like, do whatever you want, learn whatever you want. I also was a very studious kid. So I always thought I'd go back to school and get a master's and like, it's just your undergrad, whatever. So I graduated with a jazz piano performance degree and like had no idea how I was going to actually make money in the world. <laughs> I was like, thanks parents for supporting this mission of just now here I am. Um, so then I, um, I got a job actually in the music industry. I, um, <laughs> this is part of, you know, sheer fearless ignorance as a child. I, um, wrote, I 
I had read this book, Bill Graham Presents, um, and Bill Graham was one of the first, he's in the US, but he's one of like kind of the first like famous promoter guys. Um, and he actually like found the Grateful Dead and like gave them their first stages and um, my parents are deadheads. So this book like really spoke to me and like my upbringing and sort of like the history of where I come from and the importance of music in my life. And um, I found out that the gentleman who um, took over uh, Bill Graham's company when he passed away, he he started his own company called Another Planet Presents and that their offices were literally down the street from where my apartment was in Berkeley. So I thought, this is fate. You know, this is, okay, this is meant to be. And so I wrote a letter as to why uh, Greg Perloff, who's the owner of the company, should hire me. And I walked down to the offices and I rang the doorbell and, and they're like, you know, how can I help you? And I was like, hi, I'm here for a meeting with Greg Perloff, which I totally made up. And they, I, I said it though, was like such, you know, <laughs> with such authority that they let me in. And then they saw that I was, you know, a 19 year old child essentially. And they were like, um, he's busy. Are you sure you have a meeting with him? And, and I, and I was like, yes. And luckily just then he came out, he walked out of his office. And so I, I walked over to him and I was like, my name, my name is Leah. I, um, I know that I would be a great asset to this company. And like, I handed him this letter as to why you should hire me. And he read it <laughs> and he hired me on the spot. He was like, you're either absolutely insane or you have just the right amount of gusto. And I was like, well, let's hope it's the latter. So, um, so I started working um, for Another Planet and I really learned about the ins and outs of the music industry there. You know, like what is a manager, what is a promoter, what is an agent? And um, really gathered a lot of information that way. And, and also I was exposed to so much new music. Um, and then I, uh, so, but at night I would play, I found this this bar that let me play solo jazz piano gigs, you know, as background music to people drinking and being merry. And, um, and that was just like a, a way to, you know, keep playing and feel, feel fulfilled. Um, but one of the nights this gentleman approached me and he um, asked me if I would ever move down to LA to join all female electronic band. And I was like, you know, what, who, what? <laughs> um, and it turns out this gentleman, Peter Franco um, is a, is the engineer and uh, collaborative producer with Daft Punk. So I thought, Okay, like I honestly didn't know anything about electronic music, but like I obviously had heard the name Daft Punk. And um, so I said to him, like, I don't even know how to play a synthesizer. I don't even know how to turn one on. Like, I don't think I'm qualified for this. And and he was like, no, actually, all the all the all the other young women have a background in jazz. And that's, you know, like I want I want there to be musicality in this band like the rest of it. Trust me, you'll learn it'll be easy for you. And luckily I believed him when he said it will be easy for you because I thought, yeah, you know, like I, I have a degree in jazz, like this will be no problem. So I literally took the biggest leap of my life and moved down to LA and joined this band and spent the next, you know, two, three years trapped in a garage learning sound design and synthesis and pro tools and, you know, production. And um, actually the first synths I ever had touched were um, the synthesizers from the Daft Punk Pyramid Tour. So I, you know, I had this great group of um, the Daft Arts team helped us learn so much. And um, it was not easy for me. It was an extremely sharp learning curve. And, and there are many times where I wanted to, to quit. But um, I had read that like some at some point along this journey, I had read about Grimes and how she produced her own album. And I was raised by hippies who, you know, literally told me they could do anything. But at this point I had been in the rooms with so many producers and they were all dudes. And um, like hearing that she had done that just blew my mind wide open because I realized like, I didn't even think that was an option for me because there was no visual representation in my role and in my space. Like I just didn't even like subconsciously, I just didn't even think I could be that role because I didn't see myself in that role. And that really blew my mind open because it just made me think like, oh, what else am I not thinking I could do? And, um, I just, I became obsessed with being visual representation for somebody else the way Grimes was for me. And I, I just, you know, went full throttle on learning how to produce. Um, and I got Ableton and I, you know, just like went in and, um, started being the best producer I, I could be. And at this point in time, so like, I'm just like, I'm in this weird experimental synth band. Okay. And, um, I was, I remember my friend, I'm sitting in my house in my, my apartment in LA and my friend sends me 
this track called Drinky by an artist, Sophie Tucker. And it's like, whoa, what is this? And I remember even like using it as a reference track to like try to make a track similar, obviously epically failed. But like I, you know, I, they, they had just one song out and I was just like, so like, who are these people? Like this music is like nothing I've ever heard. And, um, and so my, I was at, uh, my my boyfriend who's still my current boyfriend um he started an electronic music festival in um tahoe california and it, uh it's like very electronic driven and um he i sent him this track and i was like you have to book these artists they only have one song out but like i really believe in like i think they're going to be somebody <laughs> and so he ends up meeting with our agent and chatting about it and he books them for his festival and uh he puts them on an after party and he said, and he asked me, he's like, do you want to, do you want to open up at their after party? Like it's a tiny little venue. So you'd have to just DJ. And I was like, I don't know how to DJ. And he was like, well, you, you don't know how you've done any of the things you've done. So just, if you want to do it, figure it out. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm going to wing it. And so, um, I went to this after party and I had, I literally was DJing off of my laptop. Like it was horrible. The set, I, the set was bad. Okay. <laughs> And, um, I, like there was nobody on the dance floor. The only person there was my 65 year old mother because she was on the dance floor to feed me chicken nuggets over the DJ booth. And I remember thinking like, I remember thinking like, what am I doing with my life? Like, is this it? You know, like, oh my God, what am I doing? And so it was pretty late and I finished and I left and I went to bed and in the morning I woke up and I had a DM from Sophie Tucker that said, we loved your set last night. We were backstage listening to the whole thing. Would you like to go on tour with us? And I was like, am I being punked? Um, so I, I responded and I was like, uh, um, clearly I'm not an actual DJ. Uh, like, are, are you sure? And um, they're like, we loved your song selection. You had great energy and you had a great, like you had a great vibe. We watched, you know, we watched you from backstage and we liked what you did. So we're doing our first US headline tour. If you want to come, come. And, you know, that's that. So I just was like, I guess I'll, you know, I got to figure this out. So I went on the road with them like a short month later and I literally learned how to DJ in front of people failing night after night. And like, you know, I would get off stage and Tucker would like give me some notes or some, you know, some tweaks that I could try or like song selections to work on. Cause I, you know, even at this point, I didn't know much like that much about house music. I had, I had thrown a party in San Francisco with my friend um, and we booked some great underground house artists, but like very, very underground stuff. So like, like kind of trying to understand like their semi mainstream with like underground crowd that they sort of had and um, really learning how to read a room. And um, it was, you know, it was, it was a lot, it was hard and kind of embarrassing at times, <laughs> you know, just standing up there being like, I'm not good at this. And I had like this little tiny DJ controller and, you know, we were playing these tiny rooms and all over America. And, um, and it was, a, it was a journey, but like, that's kind of the first, that was the first time that I learned, like really what people want is, is my, they're here for the energy and like the experience of standing in a room, listening to music with other people, you know, which is, which is like being part of something greater than yourself. And like, if I can just get out of the way and like, not, you know, not get in the way of myself, like I, I can do an okay job. And so as the, you know, then, then they released best friends and then, you know, all of a sudden we were on a tour bus and we're playing like in real venues. And I was like, okay, I need to like, not just use this, this crappy DJ controller. Like I need to maybe learn how to re use real CDJs. So then I got CDJs and then I started, you know, producing my own dance music that I could put, put in my sets. And so then I added a piano and it's been such a journey to get to, you know, where I currently am. And I, and I always have to think like when, when you, when you take a look backwards behind you and you see how far you come, it's like kind of, it's a wild thought. Um, and so I'm always excited to think like, I wonder like in five to 10 years from now, like when I turn around, like what, what I'll have learned in this time, you know, right. but at this point now I'm like using a lot of, um, like I'll, I'll record some piano loops and, um, I have a TR8 drum machine and, uh, I'm doing like a lot of like looping the piano and like creating a beat and, you know, putting in another track on top of that and like layering things. And I remember seeing Honey Dijon and having my mind blown with like what she was doing with the DJ decks and, um, being super inspired by kink and like his, his live set, um, and I, I booked him for a party in San Francisco once and got to see that up close and was just blown away, you know? And so just, it's been, you know, it's been a beautiful journey, but that's, that's sort of how it all started for me. 
Where did the name come about, first of all? And then also sort of what impact does DJing have on your mental health or producing for that matter? You know, how do you feel when you're in that moment mixing records and feeding off the energy a great crowd give you? Um, do you get that endorphin rush when you when you come off stage? Are there any sort of nerves or anxieties before you go on stage? And then we can sort of talk about um, your your move into kind of putting out your own tracks and you put out your first record called Amber Rose, which was in 2018. How did that come about and how did you kind of make that leap from not just strictly DJing to producing too? As it's it's not something that many people realise it's something you can do easily. <laughs> totally, totally, a thousand percent. And they, I know there's a, they're two completely different skill sets. Um, but, but I do think that they obviously feed from the same um, well, if you will. But yeah, so let me start with my name. Um, so when I first started dating my partner, he had already started, uh, he has, he owns a few music festivals in the US. He actually um, recently sold his company to MTV slash Viacom. Um, and they're, they're kind of growing their festivals. But um, when I had first started dating him, he was also like a young buck trying to figure it out. Um, but he would tell me all of his ideas for future music festivals and joke that I was going to steal all of his ideas and break up with him and start my own company called Leah Presents. So that turned into El. <laughs> and I had like my whole life, I'd never had a nickname. And my parents intentionally named me Leah, so I like wouldn't have a nickname. And I always wanted one. So I finally got my first nickname. And um, all, you know, all of his friends like just knew me strictly as LP. And um, my friends started calling me that. And I was, I just like, oh, I love that I finally had a nickname. <laughs> So I, when I knew, I knew that, so it's funny because there's this weird thing that now happens when I go on tour and I get off stage and people ask like, what's your real name? And in my mind, I'm like, I, like the only person who calls me Leah is my mom at this point. Like everybody just calls me LP. And so it's funny that I know that people now think it's like a stage name or something, but um, it's really like, it's really, I, I remember my, my partner ended up coming to a few shows in the middle of one of our European tours and he was, you know, backstage, he was like LP and you know, whatever, asking me a question. And my tour manager was like, why are you calling her her stage name? And, and he was like, um, I gave her this name and this is definitely what she goes by. <laughs> so there's like a funny, weird discrepancy. Like when people ask that, I'm like, no, like everybody, you can call me LP, trust me. Um, but then my, my last name, when I, I, you know, needed something, cause there's a, there's obviously an amazing talented artist named LP out in the world. Um, and just like more in the rock world, but I knew I needed to throw something on the end of that. And so my mother's maiden name is Giobi. And so it was sort of my way of reclaiming the matriarch and taking her name, you know, and it's so funny because when I told her I was going to do that, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to use Giobi as my, as my last name. She, she was like, Kira was thinking like reclaiming the matriarch, like, yes. And she was like, oh, you're going to do that. Like, trust me, nobody's going to going to be able to pronounce it you're going to have such a hard time with it and she was definitely right <laughs> nobody knows <laughs> they think that I'm saying G-O-B like gob a lot I get that a lot or like you know it's it's Italian though so it's like G-O-B but it's it's yeah it has been like it's been a journey with it um yeah so that's kind of where my name comes from okay Sophie from Sophie Tucker is really really passionate about this topic um we actually started a collective called Animal Talk together um, that is, is all about, um, like finding your inner child. It's, it's, it's a party actually that we, we go into different venues and change the space into like a neon jungle and everybody gets these animal masks and we, you know, rave all night long. And, um, it's also a, a publishing company, but, but really at the ethos of this collective is, um, health and wellness as well. Uh, because here's the thing about touring that's pretty wild is, um, it's almost like we're, we have to, tr we have to treat ourselves like athletes and obviously in like the rock and roll, you know, DJ electronic artist world, that is not the norm, but to, to get up every single day and to go and have enough energy to like give everything you have and lay it out on, on the dance floor and, you know, sort of like be there for all the people who have come and they've spent their money and, and their time with you. And, and then to get on a different plane the next day or to get on the tour bus or to get on a train or what, like the, just the taxing energy that travel takes. It, it's like, we, we realized very quickly that we had to eat the right things. We had to figure out how to sleep enough. Um, and, you know, make sure we're getting like the, the 
the good kind of sleep. And um, so we're actually, we all are sober when when we're touring. (laughs) There's, there's no drinking, there's no drugs, there's no, um, you know, it's like, it's really like, we're really athletes, like figuring out how to like the adrenaline that you have to like get up on stage and then like how to calm the adrenaline down afterwards so that you can go to bed at a decent hour without, you know, needing a pill of some sort and then starting that cycle all over. And, um, so I, I learned pretty early that, um, I mean, trust me, I had a few like big nights where I was DJing and I was drinking and raging and the next day is just not sustainable. And so that was a very quick lesson in, you know, if I, if I really want to make a living out of this and if I really want to show up to be the best version of myself, you know, after traveling all day and, um, I'm, I just like for my mental health, I, I have to, um, you know, treat my body as good as I can. And so that, that was, that I learned that very quickly and, and very hard <laughs> and as one, as one does in this journey. Um, and you know, I think that like, it's, it's pretty wild, like touring with them, you know, having a family who's sort of like going through the same thing and, and thinks about this journey in the same way, um, has made it really easy to tour. And, you know, we, we have green tea before we go on stage and we're like, you know, doing cartwheels and getting each other excited. And it's, but when I tour by myself, um, it's definitely a different experience, you know, like I I am asked at most clubs I go to, like, if, if I, you know, want any sort of substance or whatever. And, um, and, and, you know, that's, that's all good and fine. No, no judgment on that, but it, it is definitely like a little bit lonelier when I'm by myself and, you know, sort of, I'm away from my family and I'm away from my partner. And, you know, it's sort of this like, really, it can be a really isolating experience. You know, you're on an airplane, you're surrounded by people or you're on, you're in a DJ booth surrounded by people, but you're not really having, um, you know, you're not really having the opportunity to have these like deep connections or conversations with people. And, and it, it can be, it can be really lonely. So, um, I try to balance as much touring as I can to, you know, tour with Soph and Tuck who, who are totally family and, um, make me feel, like I'm a real normal person (laughs) and like having normal interactions with people. And, um, it's been, you know, I've, I also learned pretty quickly how, how important that is for me and your, you know, how the importance of your touring family and who you keep around you. And, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not a normal lifestyle. It's not normal to, um, (laughs) you know, to like jack yourself up super late at night and, um, you know, have people cheering for you. And like, um, you know, this, it's like this, the energy that you get from that is just like, nothing else. It's just not comparable to anything else. It's, it's, it is like the ultimate drug. And so learning how to, um, you know, keep grounded and keep yourself in like a sane headspace is like total. it's part of the, part of the work of being an artist, I think. Mm. There were some really nice words you said there about Sophie Tucker. And I'm sure if they're listening to it, they'll this, or hopefully they'll listen to this pod and they'll, they'll really appreciate that. Um, let's talk a bit about Femme House now. Now, supporting female DJs is obviously something I care a lot about. Um, it's why you're on the pod. Um, it's something that you care hugely about. Um, for listeners who haven't heard of Femme House, what is it? How did it start? Why did you feel inspired to do it? You know, what was the proudest moment that you've had on this journey running it? Because let's face it, there are absolutely loads of female DJs doing amazing things right now. Um, you've got like Savannah Mac in the UK. You've got the Black Madonna, Honey Dijon, Peggy Goo, Nina Kravitz, Nora M. Pure, um, Helena Howe, Maya Jane Cole, Charlotte DeWitt, B. Trace. And that's just like a few I can name off the top of my head. But there's obviously loads and loads of other female DJs doing great things. Um, kind of talk to me about your journey of Femme House and, and was it kind of almost inspired by perhaps you know gender biases that you had experienced in the industry or was it purely out of kind of you wanted to give back to these great women who who um who needed a, a step up and, and 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 a helping hand as well yeah you know great question i mean i'm i'm a big believer in like if the door isn't open for you make sure you open up for somebody else so you know just like that ethos continues to, to push me in the things that i do but um i think that for me like i touched on this a little bit but like really uh grimes was like probably like where where it all started for me um because grimes taught me what visual representation does like i didn't you know i didn't believe that i could be the producer like not not consciously but subconsciously because i didn't i was never sitting in a studio with a female producer and so you know realizing the importance of that and how that like i mean i don't expect every woman to like go out there and become a producer like if that's not your calling it's not your calling but i think that Um, you know, creating spaces where people who aren't historically in those roles become those roles open, you know, open up your brain to think like, maybe there's other parts of my life that I don't think that I could be good at or conquer because I don't see anybody like myself in those roles. It just sort of expands 
what you think you can do as a human. And I think that that is one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves. So, um, so I start, you know, I, I started this to, um, give a safe space to, for the women to learn how to make music, um, you know, and, and particularly electronic music with computers. I took my first Ableton course in San Francisco, um, when I was going to school up there and, um, it was me and 250 guys. <laughs> and so it was, yeah, it was, you know, it's just, which was a lot. And for me, like, like I'm the kind of person who was like, yes, bring it on. Like, you know, like I'm not supposed to be here. I'm definitely going to be here, but I know that that is, <laughs> but I know that isn't the case for everybody. And so it just became important to me to create a safe space where we can feel like we can ask the questions. And there are other people that just like look like us that we can collaborate with and that we can feel comfortable enough to start the journey. Because the thing about this, it's it, learning how to make this kind of music is it, it is a really steep learning curve. Like the first, you know, just, just, just downloading. Like I remember the first time I tried to put a DAW on my computer, it was Pro Tools. And I couldn't even figure out how to like get the plugins stored in the right place on my computer to like actually access them. And I mean, it took me a week and it was brutal. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, like it was just, you know, and my, my brother was given a computer before I was, and, you know, I guess maybe he expressed more interest in it. I'm not really sure, but just like, you know, if, if you put a synthesizer in a room full of little boys, they just like go and they start just touching every button and tackling in it. And, you know, not, and if you put one in front of a bunch of little girls, like there is just like this, this different, um, hesitancy and touching on the buttons, you know, like you don't want to like touch the wrong button or something. And, and so just like making sure we're creating spaces where we're encouraging women to go in and touch all the buttons. Like you're not going to break anything. Like just, just get your hands dirty. Um, you know, that, that just became important to me. Um, and, uh, as I started making my own music, it was, it was also really important to me to work with other females, um, and other women, um, and to, you know, work with female top liners and, you know, specifically women of color, you know, to give voices to those that haven't, you know, historically had as many opportunities. Um, and so kind of that, that sort of just became part of my mission, um, you know, internally and externally. And I always knew I wanted to, to have a, a place, you know, where people could come and meet other people like them and, and collaborate. And cause the thing is like, I want even when I learned when I started working in the music industry side of things, my first job after college is, um, you know, the role of the, of the booker, which is what a promoter does. It's very much a boys club still. Um, and the role of the gatekeeper is very much a boys club still that that comes in the form in the music industry. It comes in the form of, of booker or agent or producer, you know, the, the, the producer role of essentially shapes the, the narrative of the song. And, um, there's this like interesting dynamic that I, that I discovered quickly from moving to LA is that, you know, most of the singers are women and most of the producers are men. And there's like a lot of these super talented singer songwriters sort of looking for a producer to like make their music and put it out and sort of, you know, pluck them out of obscurity. And it creates this really interesting power dynamic that I was just really sick of. Um, and I wanted to empower women who had ideas and had voices and had songs to record them themselves, you know, if they wanted to, or at least be able to speak the language of the studio so that when they are in a room with a male producer, they're still controlling the sound of their song, which is ultimately the sound of their voice. So, um, it just, it just, I just became very impassioned by this project and I had the, I was volunteering at this, um, this camp called girls rock camp for young girls to learn how to play music. And I met this woman named Lauren Kopp, whose artist name is Minnie bear. And she is an unbelievable educator. And she taught herself Ableton by reading the manual front to back. And her and I just, uh, we really connected over our passion for teaching other girls, you know, these computer programs and, and how to make electronic music. And so, um, so with the help of, uh, my other, my other business manager, Lauren Spaulding, we started Fem House, um, which was which was an in-person um, uh, monthly workshop in Los Angeles that has now obviously since the pand pandemic, it's gone online. Um, and now we've launched, we just launched last week um, a, in partnership with Moog Synthesizers, we launched a uh, online courses for like a full month long curriculum for a bunch of different topics. So, um, you know, it's just, it's just a space to come and learn how to do these things by educators that I think are fabulous. And, um, but the coolest thing for me has been as I've toured, uh, you know, all over the world, meeting, meeting girls in every city. Like when I, I always plan that I go to the merch booth and 
Um, I get to have these amazing conversations with people all over the world speaking different languages. Um, and women want to learn this stuff. Like they want to learn how to do this stuff. And they, they've, I've, I've seen the interest firsthand and it's so cool to be able to talk to them about it and give them resources. And, you know, cause when I first started out, I remember being like, I guess I'll just like go in this YouTube hole, trying to like find a tutorial that will show me how to like put my plugins correctly. So it's just nice to be able to like give them these resources and introduce them to other women who are doing the same thing and, you know, starting to collaborate with one another. And it's been so inspiring and mind blowing and awesome. And it's for sure the, the, the coolest thing that I do. You talked there um, briefly, um, Leah, about the sort of loneliness and the um, the sort of isolation that you can get as a DJ. Just building on what you said about Femme House, from a, from a community perspective, are there any female DJ friends that you've met through Femme House or just in the in the industry generally that that support you and vice versa when it comes to mental health? Um, do those conversations take place? And is it is it a supportive as um, environment as well as a collaborative environment? And and just secondly, just for those girls and women who are listening to this pod maybe and wanting to kind of get into DJing or producing what message or advice would you give them from your experience yeah totally um yeah I have met so many uh, talented women who are out there doing it Uh, there's a woman named Barb's who I just absolutely dig and whenever I play a gig in San Francisco and if you know I, I always ask she's based in San Francisco So like, I'll ask the promoter, like, if there isn't an opener or something, I would love to bring her on. So it's just, you know, trying to make sure that these women that I'm meeting in different places who are taking our courses and who are engaging, you know, giving them um, opportunities to play whenever, whenever I can, Uh, because I, you know, a big, a big reason we do this is to um, open, open doors that have normally been hard to open for us. So, um, you know, that's, she's been really inspiring to me and, and she's grown infinitely and is such an amazing such an amazing DJ um, and pushes me. And, you know, like last time I played with her, I was like, oh, she's okay. I got to step it up, (laughs) which has been awesome. Um, And I think, you know, if it's definitely a collaborative environment and it's definitely, um, you know, there isn't, I think historically, obviously there's, there's been so few female producers and DJs that it's like, okay, there's only room for one of us at the top because there's, you know, only one, one of us. And that's just not how I see the world. I think the more of us are doing it, the more of us will do it. And, um, you know, that's just how visual representation works. And it's very collaborative and very supportive. And it's been really awesome to be a part of that. Um, yeah. And as far as um, advice, ooh, great question. I mean, you know, I guess like there's, there's a few things I would say is like, you just never know who's going to be out there, like put yourself out there as much as you can, because you just never know what gig is going to, you know, who's going to be at what gig or like, what's going to click for you as far as like learning wise, or just meeting the right people. Like, I mean, when I played that, you know, that after party at the music festival and there was nobody on the dance floor, like not in a million years, did I think like Soph and Tuck were listening. And, you know, that was essentially like my first big opportunity. Like I, you just, I just don't think you ever know. And you just have to put yourself in as many uncomfortable or comfortable situations as you can and just like keep getting out there, you know, whether it's like a tiny gig in a hotel or whatever. I'm also W Hotels North American music director. And so I try to book as many female DJs at our properties as possible. So if, you know, if you are a female DJ listening to this, definitely hit me up. Um, my email is LP at LPGOB.com. Um, and, you know, always looking to pass on those opportunities, but you, you know, I just think you never know. And if you're having fun, if you love what you do, just keep getting out there and doing it. And, you know, something will, will click. And also this idea of believing in yourself. Like what I learned from Soph and Tuck is that they believed in me so much. Like I had no opportunity. I, I had no other option, but to believe in myself also. And like when I decided to believe in myself, cause it was a decision, like I am good enough. I do deserve to be here. I can do this when I decided to think that way and like give myself a mantra to every day, tell myself I could do it. You know, that's when the world started moving in unison with me. So like, because I believe that I can is why I can. And so if you, you know, and to get your brain to, to understand that, like, I think mantras are super helpful for that. Um, every, every morning I do three pages of morning pages where I just, you know, word vomit, whatever's in my head, just to get it out and on the paper so I can go and do my work and sit in the studio. And, um, I always end my morning pages with you are the piano house queen. You are the piano house queen. You are the piano house queen. And I just, I do that for literally (laughs) 
for an entire paragraph. And then I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm going to, I'm going to get up and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go write music or so I, you know, and like, that's just like, that's a straight up trick. Like when you read it and when you're telling yourself that, like you just sort of start believing it when you start believing it, it's like literally when the world will also start believing it. And I, I really believe in that power. I, um, I read a book called the artist's way that changed my life. Like, you know, it was, it was probably like right before I met Soph and Tuck and this book is, uh, it's un- like, I've read every self-help book under the sun. Trust me, all of them. <laughs> and then you're like, if only I, once I finish this book, my life is going to be perfect. Um, and like the only book that really had an influence on me is The Artist's Way. And it talks a lot about mantras and, you know, the need to believe in yourself and how to get yourself to believe in yourself and, um, you know, how to take care of yourself and, um, how to treat yourself like a precious object and how that will actually make you stronger and um, all sorts. It's it's a 12-week uh, workbook and it's phenomenal. Um, and I actually, as soon as I finish reading it, I start reading it all over again. So I'm on like my 15th time through it and I just like read a few pages every night and um, it really keeps my mental health in check, um, you know, and reminds me like I can definitely have a tendency to just go, 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 go until I'm completely burnt out. And this book like reminds me to to take care of myself. So I've recommended to every artist or somebody who feels like there's, there's an inkling that they could be an artist and maybe they're scared to check that out. This book is definitely for you. We've talked about LPGOB, the DJ producer, um, piano house extraordinaire. Let's go behind the decks a little bit and talk about your own journey, Leah. So firstly, Obviously, you had a really, really supportive um, family environment growing up. You know, what was that like? And, and were there any sort of mental, early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint looking back? You know, who's the who's the Leah we meet at this point? Yeah. Uh, like, I, literally, as you asked, I almost like <laughs> thinking about my family, like makes my eyes fill with tears of joy. I'm, I just I love my family so much and I'm so close to them. And the older I get, the more I realize how special they are because they had two completely different kids, kids who are day and night. Um, my brother, like the only concerts he's been to are when I drag him, when I'm in his city and I drag him to my concert, <laughs> he like doesn't really, he's like a sports guy and like doesn't really care about music. And, um, and you know, and then, then there's me and my parents just saw who we were, you know, like they, they talk a lot about like, you, you know, your, your kids are kind of born who they are and like your job is just to, support them and love them and, um, you know, help them guide them into whatever it is that they want to become. And they, they just, they're fantastic human beings. Um, they, I think like their deadhead spirits have like really influenced me personally. Um, like I do this gospel house set on Sundays now that I, that I stream on Twitch and I've, I've got, I've like, pulled out some Jerry Garcia, like guitar, Grateful Dead guitar licks. I put over these like house tracks and uh, it's been so fun, but they, you know, they, they really had such a deep um, passion and joy for music. Like on Sundays, instead of going to church um, as a family, we would listen to like my, my parents would pull out records and we would like sit as a family and listen to music and, you know, dance together or, or whatever. So I think that like really my, my job is, um, you know, directly tied to, to those experiences as a kid and like feeling like that love and that support and that joy, like that's the community that, you know, I want to build on the dance floor and that, that we are building with animal talk. And, um, you know, those, those experiences are so deeply rooted in me from, from them. And I, oh, I feel so grateful. Yeah. I've, I've just, I've been, I've been loved to my core with, with everything I've done. And I, I realize you know, the older I get, how special and different that is. And, um, you know, I, I want to pay that forward to other human beings on the planet because I know how life-changing that is. <laughs> um, and as far as mental health, you know, there was a period actually reading The Artist's Way really, really helped me. But because like before that, when I was learning all this like new gear and um, it was, you know, and, and, and synthesis and oscillators and all the stuff that was really, really new to me, it was extremely challenging and there was a time when I thought that I like, I needed Adderall to like be able to focus and like really learn these things. And essentially like that drug can be really, I mean, I know it's like prescribed by a doctor, but like that drug can be really scary. And I started to tie my creativity to it. Like thinking like I couldn't sit down in the studio for long periods of time and, and work and, and make music until, unless I had that. 
And, and I think that that for, for me personally was, was, was scary to like tie who I was, my creativity to like needing, needing something outside of myself. Um, and so I, I worked really, really, really hard to disassociate those two things and to, you know, like believe in myself and to sort of, you know, I think that like, I was, I very much was like in tune with like my masculine go, 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 go. And like really a lot of making art is like being more in touch with your feminine. And so, um, you know, working hard to like find it within myself and to, um, you know, learn how to like take breaks and to learn how to focus on my own. And, um, that was for sure a, a big journey for me in those, like those years where I was trying to learn all of this. And, you know, I mean, I'm no judgment on obviously like if you need it, you need it and thank goodness they have medication out there. But, um, I know that for me, it just start it stopped being like a, it stopped being a healthy thing. And that was like a, that was for sure something that I had to work really hard to overcome. You moved out of your hometown, Oregon, to Los Angeles to further your career and, and, and make it in the music industry. Now, relocating in the US is certainly a lot more challenging than it is in the UK. I mean, in the UK, you might be moving 200 miles max, maybe maybe more if you're going from like Manchester to London. But obviously in the US, you might be going thousands and thousands, <laughs> thousands of miles to relocate. I mean, if you get homesick, there's not really much you can do because it's a two grand flight plane to get back. Um how did you adjust to, you know, that city as, as vibrant, as buzzing as Los Angeles, Los Angeles is? It's got a whole range of thriving music scenes, but also a lot of social pitfalls as well. I, I imagine there must be a lot of stuff around social media and sort of this um, maybe, you know, appearances being a bit deceiving in Los Angeles. I hear a lot of that, a, a lot of um, that about. Um, did it take did it take you a while to bed in and, and feel like you did belong in the city and it was your new home? And, and also... Um, you know, how did you balance being a producer and a DJ whilst having to have a, you know, functioning social life? Because, you know, you mentioned some of the realities of, of being on tour and, and all that sort of stuff as being really kind of impactful on your mental health. How did it affect you in kind of being a producer in the day to day life and giving time to your friends or giving time to your family? Totally. Yeah, great questions. Well, Freddie, LA is definitely, uh, <laughs> it's definitely very far from Oregon. Uh, I remember growing up and thinking like, uh, you know, I didn't even know what like designer jeans were growing up. Like it's a very, we live in like a little hippie community. And um, I remember thinking like, I'm never going to live in LA. It's so materialistic. And <laughs> that was sort of my, my thoughts when I was growing up. And then um, my partner actually moved here first to open up an office. And then, you know, I got this opportunity to move to, to join this band. And I just thought, you know, I, I have really grounding parents and I had a really grounding upbringing and, you know, if I, if I can just hold on to that while I'm down here, then, you know, I'll give, I'll give it a try, but it's definitely, uh, you know, you can think of it two ways. You can think of LA as either a place where people are, they only want to know what you do and how you can help them. And it's just full of ladder climbing and there's like not very many sincere people, or you can think of it like, it's this one place in the U.S. where all these people come, all these creative people, all these people who have dreams, and they all come to the city to try to further their dreams. And, you know, you get to meet other people who are um, dreaming in the same way you are and are, you know, making music and are, it's just like, it's this, this creative well of humans, like, and it's pretty amazing. And I think that both of those things are extremely true at the same time. <laughs> and, um, you know, for me, it, it has, I'm, I actually am moving. Um, I'm actually moving next week, which has been really stressful. <laughs> yeah. Very stressful to have moved during a pandemic, but here we are. Um, we're actually moving to Austin, Texas. Never thought I'd be a Texan, but Austin's very, Austin is a very weird place. So, um, yeah, very liberal. Like they had, like their slogan is keep Austin weird and everybody's in tie dyed shirts. And so like, I think I can hang. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I think that I, I loved LA and I had great experiences here and I met great people, but, um, like, you know, back to being on the road and my mental health, like when I get off the road, it's really important for me to be around people who, um, who care more about like, you know, being well rounded, grounded humans than like, what they do for work. And, you know, I, I, like, I remember going home and visiting my parents, um, like last year and I went to a dinner party with some of their friends and it was a four hour dinner party and not once did anybody bring up what they did for a living. And I remember that shocking me. And that then became a scary realization that like the culture that I'm in in LA is so not that, you know, it's like so prevalent, like who you are and what you do. And, 
um, you know, and, and again, I know that there's like good parts of that as well. But um, for me, I just, I just, um, I kind of, I just, I just was working so much and I was touring the last few years. I've been touring like nine months out of the year and, and just like, you know, that with this new W Hotels job that I had, I would, you know, play a gig until 2 a.m. And then I'd play an after party. And then I would go back to my hotel and I would send emails until five in the morning and I would sleep for a few hours. And I would just like, it was just really, you know, and then, and then all I'm doing as a human, like I'm not reading any books of interest just to like be a well-rounded person. I wasn't like engaging in, in things outside of my work. Like I was just working, you know, to further my career. And I, at some point, like very recently, and this pandemic has really actually helped me with the, with this personal growth. I just, I just realized like, this isn't who I want to be. Like, I care very much about sharing music and about making music that I love and that that will always be a part of me. But, you know, I, I want to be able to show up for my friends and I want to be able to show up for my partner who is literally the most accepting, loving human on the planet. <laughs> and I want to be able to show up for his life, you know, not, not just when it's convenient for my life and um which was never and i want you know and i want to be able to like watch a documentary and read a book and um you know i just i just want i want to be a full person and um so i'm excited to be i think in a culture and city that you know better supports that when i'm not on tour um and so yeah it's you know it's been i'm i learned so much from my time down here and i met so many great people but it's it's you know i think i'm ready for for the next chapter of my life which is which is a little bit more integrated with, you know, mental health and um, personal growth. Our final topic of conversation, Leah, and it's one I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how do you think you would say your mental health is at the moment, pal? At the moment, um, actually, it's funny because we are in a pandemic right now. Um, The pandemic is also, I was about to everything sort of shut down in the US on March 13th. And on March 14th, I was supposed to get on a plane to, to, I had 42 shows lined up from March 20th until June. Um, You know, they were literally like Russia, the Middle East, um, Eastern Europe, all over the US, like literally I was about to be everywhere and then popping back and forth between like Miami and Europe for some Femme House and some W Hotel stuff. And it was about to be crazy. And I was, I was really excited for all the experiences, of course. But when this hit, I really, it was really difficult because it forced me to go inward for the first time in years. Like I had just been, I just had spent years just like, go, go, go do everything. Say yes to everything. You know, like this is, this is your opportunity. Just go. And, um, you know, I had missed family gatherings. I had missed, uh, you know, my niece being born. I had missed, um, time with my partner. I had missed big, you know, weddings that, uh, both sides of our family had had, I had missed. And it, it, it really forced me for the first time in years to just like find peace with sitting still. And that's actually the hardest thing ever for me. And, um, I think that this challenge is like exactly what I needed it. And I'm, I'm working on welcoming it and accepting it. Um, and you know, I just, I actually just started therapy because I, I have time to, and, you know, just like really being okay with, um, with who I am as a person and, uh, you know, being able to be still and just be with myself. Um, so I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm making strides and I feel really, really grateful for this time to put a lot of time and work into that. Um, I also feel like, you know, living in a groundhog's day every day, sort of, and not being able to travel all over the world and meet people on dance floors who I, who I, you know, never thought I would have met and connected with. And, um, that's, I also am really mourning that and, you know, giving myself time and space to mourn that is, um, is, you know, is I think healthy too. So it's been a wild trip. I feel like I have every single emotion every single day. that's it's a lot but it is what it is and you know it is who I am and so um you know I I think that it's it's been a really challenging and also triumphant time so and and I think that the world needed this pause but you know and and also now what's happening in the U.S. with with um racial inequality and and justice and it's you know a whole other set of am I doing enough am I contributing enough like what with you know with the power that I've been given or the the doors that I've been that I've been that have been open for me like am I doing enough and like that has added to a whole other set of 
um, really like looking myself in the mirror in a hard way, which has been great and uncomfortable. <laughs> I completely agree what you said about um, feeling every emotion every day. That's certainly something that I seem to be going through a lot right now. It's ups and downs every day, let alone every week. Um, if you if you feel comfortable saying, Leah, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any, and how do they affect you in your day to day life? And what do you think? your age was when you first realized that these feelings you were having weren't actually physical and they were actually in your mind yeah great question um I guess um probably the closest you know with uh feeling like tying my creativity to Adderall as I had would sort of was the closest experience I've had to addiction um and uh you know that happened in my like mid twenties, um, or early, early to mid. Um, and I, I feel grateful to, you know, have moved through that part of my life because, you know, I, I can see how easily and quickly something like that could happen. Um, I don't have any, there's nobody in my, you know, immediate family that has addiction. So like I had never experienced or seen anything like that. Um, and, you know, other than that, it's just like, I think that daily I live with, <laughs> with, um, you know, where I, I personally work a lot on seeing my emotions happening, like as they're happening and like observing them instead of getting sucked into them. So, you know, whether it's happiness or sadness or whatever it is, just, um, you know, I can, I can easily go with the current of how I'm feeling. And it feels like I, I can have tunnel vision. It's like, however I feel right now is how I'm going to feel forever. <laughs> and, you know, I really work on, a, you know, sort of taking a separation, just like, oh, right now I'm feeling a lot of anxiety about the amount of work I have. Like, oh, that's interesting. Like, there it is. I'm observing it. I'm seeing it. There's a little bit of separation. I can breathe. I can ground myself in the earth, you know, um, and just, just working on interacting with my emotions in, in a way that serves me. What things do you find in life that might trigger your mental health, Leah, i.e. kind of things that people might say, sounds, sensations, etc. And what tool them, tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, you know, outside of music to help you feel better? Um, which ones have you found that worked and, and which ones that haven't? I mean, I feel like my biggest problem is uh, I, I, I can be a workaholic. Um, and I think that that comes from like not feeling like I'm good enough or like I'm whole enough or whatever it is. And so, you know, I'm going to throw myself in my work. And I'm going to prove that I'm worthy or whatever. Um, and so some tools, some grounding tools that I'm working with are like, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm working a lot in therapy to just like restructure my brain patterns that, that put me in that spot. So, you know, like really like, dissecting those those thoughts and like where are they coming from like why are they you know why have they sort of entered my mind um and like really seeing them and understanding them and deconstructing them so that hopefully next time I can make the better decision like it's you know it's midnight now and um I could like watch a movie with my partner and like I am a whole enough person to I'm going to give myself that ability to do that <laughs> and I don't need to to sit here on the computer for the next three hours, you know, like that, that isn't going to be good for the happiness of myself as a person, as a whole. Um, you know, so I think it's like, for me, it's really been about dissecting and trying to understand my, my patterns and, um, you know, hopefully as they keep arising, making the better decision for my mental health and happiness time and time again, so that they become easier to make. And how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or might be going through a poor period of mental health? And also, what more do we have to do to ensure everyone, but from from whatever background, feels comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health? You know, there is, there is such a stigma still, which is, I yeah, I do hope that we can work on that as a culture. Um, I just, I try to show up for my friends and let them know um, you know, via phone calls or text messages or hugs or whatever that, you know, I'm, I'm here for them and that they are a priority and that, you know, they're always going to be important to me. And um, I just like, I try to, to listen so that they'll talk and talk. So they'll listen. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, I, I think like, just like reaching out and especially right now when we're all quarantined and can't really see each other, you know, just like reaching out and making sure that we, uh, that I'm that I'm showing up and also not overwhelming because like it, there is also this interesting thing that's happening where it's like everybody's reaching out and wanting to stay in touch and that can also be overwhelming so not taking it personally if I don't if I don't hear back because you know 
maybe they just need to put up a boundary and I completely respect that. And I also like uh, saying no to somebody else is saying yes to yourself. So, you know, if I reach out to a friend to go get coffee and, you know, the answer is no, I like, I always am like, awesome. Like, that's so great that you're putting a boundary for yourself and you're knowing what you need to do or whatever. Um, so, um, and then how do we, you know, I, I think that the more that other people talk about where they are with their mental health um, and that they're open about it and, you know, that they work through any, any internalized shame and, you know, are able to create safe spaces like this podcast where we can talk about it. I think that, you know, the more that you hear other people are going through that, the more comfortable you are also talking about it. And I think like with opening up and talking about it is, is also like the beginning of change for yourself. So, um, you know, I think that the, the work you're doing right now is really important. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Decks. I want to say a massive thank you to Leah, aka LPGOB, for being my first female producer and DJ on this episode and let me go Behind the Decks with her. I'll put some links to where you can follow LPGOB on social media, stream of music and follow Femhouse in the description of the pod. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, it's always okay.